everybody. Welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. Uh, as always, support those that support us. Click through on the banner and uh, don't forget Hydrolite and all our good friends that uh, support the show. And we really carefully try to select the people that are in here with us and uh, and uh, we're proud of them. So please do help us and help them. Keep the winds in the sail, the crawl of the pirate ship. And um, if you don't mind, follow me on Instagram as well. It's drdrdupinski. Excuse me, drdrwpinski, Dr. Dupinski. And I'm doing a lot of as much as I can, sort of almost daily live broadcast on Instagram. And also at drdrew.com, if you sign up on the contact list, I will get you get your emails. We'll read them on one of the podcasts. And uh, we also have some um, important material we're going to be publishing there about narcissism and about the typhus outbreak in Los Angeles and what we should be doing with homelessness, things like that. And the uh, we'll make an audio book out of the Opium series. So please do check that out as well. Today, welcome James Clear. His book is Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones, available on Amazon. He has the Habits Academy. It's a training program for individuals and organizations interested in building better habits. And who is not that? You can follow him uh, at James Clear on Twitter and also jamesclear.com. James, welcome. Hi. It's so good to talk to you. So, you know, Adam and I were uh, probably about a year ago started talking about habits and how we don't really think enough in terms of how profoundly habits affect our behavior, who we are, our, our priorities, what we can accomplish in life. And I started sort of thinking all the way back to Aristotle, who made a big issue of habits as the sort of the underpinning of character, that you really made good people by building good habits. What's mm-hmm. your philosophy on this? Yeah, well, I think certainly uh, you hit the nail on the head there. And habits are, I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. And the reason that I use that phrase is the same way that money multiplies through compound interest. You save a little bit and early on in the you know initial years, it doesn't feel like very much is happening. And then it's only 10 or 20 or 30 years later that you start to get that compounding effect and get to the hockey stick portion of the curve. Habits are kind of similar, you know, like the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And so in a sense, time will magnify whatever you feed it. If you have good habits, then time becomes your ally. If you have bad habits, then time becomes your enemy. But on any given day, it doesn't feel like very much, you know, like what, what is the difference between eating a salad for lunch or eating a burger and fries? It doesn't really feel like much on any given day. Or making your bed every day, something like that, right? Sure. Yeah. Or like uh, studying Spanish for an hour versus not studying at all. I mean, you haven't learned the language either way, um, but it's only ten, two or five or 10 years later when the effects of those daily choices have really compounded that you realize how significant uh, it is to make a choice that's 1% better or 1% worse on any given day. It, it's it, There's kind of, well, I almost feel like there's two kinds of people in the world, those that for whom this comes relatively easy or who may have had lots of experiences with this growing up and people mm-hmm. for whom it is not. So I think certainly there are differences uh, genetically, personality-wise. Um, I talk about this later in the book, chapter 18 or so, about this idea of like how do our genes influence our habits and you know are some people predisposed to – 
certain habits being easier? Do some habits align with a particular identity uh, in, you know, or personality in one way and maybe not for others? And I think uh, the verdict is out on that. I think uh, almost certainly the answer is yes, but we just don't understand it maybe at a deep enough level. We're kind of like on the cusp of understanding the connection between DNA, genes, personality, and maybe how that trickles into our daily behavior. An easy one, kind of an easy one is if you're OCD, it's easier to repeat things. Or to focus on things. Oh, yeah, prefer, sure. Yeah, so the, that's well, just an easy target. Like, look at that. Those guys have it a little bit easier, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And there are a variety of ways of looking at personality. But, you know, if you take, like, the big five, most of the traits in the big five, the the most common spectrum, you know, kind of maps personality into five spectrums. The most common one that people are familiar with is introversion and extroversion. But there are other ones like agreeableness or conscientiousness. But people who are high in agreeableness uh, tend to be warm and kind and considerate. They also tend to have higher levels of oxytocin, higher natural levels of oxytocin. And you can imagine if someone is kind of predisposed to being warm and kind and considerate, it might be easier for them to get in the habit of writing thank you notes or the habit of organizing, you know, social gatherings or something. So certainly people, uh, their their personality and genes may predispose them uh, for some things being easier. But I think your larger point here about like, well, are there some people that maybe this idea of getting a little bit better each day or sticking to habits comes more naturally to actually what's probably more accurate is that some people find themselves in an environment that is organized toward a particular outcome. And it's much easier to stick to a habit when the environment is designed for that. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is how can we take that principle and then put it to work for us. How can we design an environment where habits are more likely to come out? Give us an example. So I'll give you one example for building a good habit and for one for breaking a bad one. Uh So if you think about a bad habit, like watching too much television, for example, a lot of people feel like they watch too much Netflix or whatever. But if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Mm. They all face. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? And uh, in many cases, our habits are a response to either the cues that are in our environment. So what is obvious and visible, like the TV is visible on the wall rather than inside a wall unit or a cabinet. Or if the video game controller and console is out in the middle of the floor rather than in, inside a drawer. Um, the remote control is on the coffee table instead of tucked away inside, you know, inside a drawer in the coffee table. And all those cues are subtly nudging you toward the habit of watching TV. And it's the same way with our digital spaces. Like those are environments too. So you have, you know, like on your smartphone, if Instagram is the first thing that you see when you open up the the phone, then it's just easy to tap that. You think about it every single time you see it. Um, and it's even deeper than that. You know, it's like some people may want to try to stick to a diet, but they still follow a bunch of food blogs on Instagram. So they're constantly being triggered to do those things. So it's, it's like you... What it ends up feeling like is you end up blaming yourself and saying, oh, I need more willpower. I need more perseverance. And this is kind of that standard narrative about habits that you just need to try harder. And maybe if you had enough willpower and grit, then you would stick to it. But if you compare that environment to someone who has a phone where there are like no social media apps on the home screen or they don't follow any food blogs on Instagram, well, that person's not being tempted nearly as much. And so the environment is promoting good habits or at least making it uh, less likely that you'll be triggered or exposed to the thing that uh, that prompts the negative behavior or the behavior you're looking to avoid. So, so one of the things is to avoid the cues. What's next? So the other thing that you can do with environment design is you can reduce the friction associated with good habits or you can increase the friction associated with bad ones. So 
like one example of this, um, BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford, he, he writes about habits and behavior change as well. And he had this example where he, he liked popcorn. He enjoyed eating popcorn, but just won't, didn't want to eat as much of it. And so he took it out of the pantry, walked down his hallway, went to the garage, climbed up the ladder and put it on the highest shelf in the garage. Sure. Now, if he really wants it, he can just go out and get it, right? It's only yeah. going to take a minute. But if he's designing for his default behavior, if he's designing for like the action he's going to take when he's lazy or exhausted or feeling tired after a long day of work, he's not going to go out and get it uh, because the friction is higher. And this is the kind of thing where you hear people say, you know, if you don't want to eat sweets, don't have them in the house. Or uh, if you're imagine like if you're someone who's trying to quit smoking, well, if you have a pack of cigarettes sitting on the counter versus if the closest one is like 15 miles down the road at a a gas station, then one of those has way more friction than the other. Um, And so the more that you can redesign spaces to make the good habits obvious and frictionless, like if you want to, I had a friend who wanted to practice more violin. So he kept his violin stand right in the middle of his living room. So he'd pass it 30 times a day Mm. and lo and behold, pick it up more frequently. Um, so you want the friction of your good habits to be minimal. You want them to be as few steps as possible between you and the good behavior. And you want the friction of your bad habits to be greater. You want there to be more steps. I'm trying to get the top three or four here. What comes next? So, um, those are two good ways to organize the um, reduce the friction uh, and to make the cues more obvious for your good habits in uh, in your environment. But physical environment is only one element of what it takes to build good habits and what shapes them. Social environment is another whole like ball of wax, another whole important aspect of building uh, habits. And if you step back from a high level. Um, Many of our behaviors are socially reinforced or socially driven. And a lot of the time it's habits that we don't even think about. Like just imagine, you know, you like walk onto an elevator and you turn around to face the front or you have a job interview and you wear a suit and a tie or a dress or something nice. Now, there's no reason you have to do those things. Like you could face the back of the elevator. You could wear a bathing suit to a job interview, but we don't do them because they violate the shared expectations of the group of that particular tribe that we're in at the time. And this is one of the core lessons of how to get the social environment to work for your habits rather than against them, which is we are all part of multiple tribes. And some of those tribes are large, like what it means to be American or Australian or French. And some of them are small, like what it means to be in the group of people that are on that elevator or in, uh, you know, a neighbor who lives on your street or someone who volunteers at the local school. But all of those groups, large and small, they all have a set of like shared expectations for how people act. And when habits go with the grain of the expectations of the group, they're very attractive because doing them will help you fit in. They help you belong. And we're all wired to want to belong. We have this like deep primal drive to not be abandoned by the tribe because for our ancient ancestors, if they were abandoned by the tribe, it was a death sentence. They didn't pass their genes on. So all of us are kind of predisposed to care about belonging to the group. But when habits go against the grain of the tribe, they're very unattractive because you, it really takes a a good bit of courage to build a habit that goes against the grain of the people around you. And so the punchline of all of this is that you want to join groups where the desired behavior is the normal behavior, where the habit that you want to build is the normal thing in that group. Because right. if it's normal for them, then suddenly it becomes attractive for you to do. And it sort of has momentum to it. 
Certainly, you know, like you, uh, you see this actually all the time, like someone will join like a CrossFit gym and they want to join to get in shape. But then, you know, if they start to get friends there and stuff and they go back more and more, all of a sudden they start picking up all these habits they weren't even trying to build. You know, they're buying a certain type of shoe or knee sleeve, they're eating paleo, they're doing all these extra things that are signals. The habits are like a signal that, Hey, I belong to this tribe. This is what people do here. This is what we're, you know, my friends are into as well. Is it harder to break a bad habit or form a new habit or can you tell? Mm, I don't know. It's a good question. I think, um, you know, both of them are useful. I talk about both at length in the book. Um, but I tend to, if I'm going to pick one, I tend to prefer building good habits because often the same way that like a plant will crowd out the other plants around it as it grows stronger, good habits will often crowd out bad ones. You know, like take the example I was mentioning earlier of watching too much TV or like procrastinating by watching YouTube or things like that. If you come home from school or work and you do that for like two hours a day and then you, you could focus on breaking that bad habit or you could focus on building a new one. Say you want to like get in shape. Well, if you just focus on the habit of I get home from work, I change into my workout clothes, I go to the gym and you just master that like little routine of just getting to the gym. Then all of a sudden the TV one kind of takes care of itself right. a little bit. Like right. at the gym for an hour, you can't be watching YouTube. And so, so you, you didn't can, really you even, almost design your habit, uh, positive habit to break the old, the bad habit. Yes, in many cases. Uh, and that's one way that's recommended uh, for changing bad habits is to try to find a positive routine and insert it in the place of the, the negative one. And that is a good way to do it. Uh, but you can also, in many cases, you can break bad habits just by employing some of the things that we mentioned earlier, just by like reducing exposure. Here's a weird one for me. So I, um, I noticed that if I buy beer and I put it in the front of the fridge, like either in the door or right on the front of the shelf where I can see it as soon as I open it, I'll drink one each night just because it's there. Mm -hmm. But if I tuck it in the back of the fridge all the way in the back and I can't see it, it's like under the lowest shelf. Sometimes it'll sit there for like a month. Now, that's not going to work for someone who's you know actually an alcoholic or something like that. Mm -hmm. But for many of us, we're just trying to curtail your behavior a little bit so often we are just responding to whatever cues are obvious. And like another one that I did um, this year, I've started keeping my phone in another room until lunch each day. So it gives me a block of about like three or four hours where I can work without my smartphone next to me. Hmm. Well, if I have my phone next to me, then I'm like everybody else. I'll check it every three minutes, but I have a home office. So if I leave it in another room, it's only like 45 seconds away. It's not far, but I never go down and get it. And the question for me is like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, when it's next to me, I wanted it enough to check it a hundred times, but when it's four, I never wanted it bad enough to work 45 seconds for it. And I think that technology has done that for a lot of our habits. It has reduced the friction so much. It's made them so convenient, right. so easy, so right. natural that we find ourselves sliding into it, even though we don't really want it in a deep way. And, and to be fair, the, the people that, that uh, form the algorithms for social media or for Amazon, they know this and they're playing with that. They're after us. Yeah. It's just kind of like a, a natural byproduct of capitalism. You know, like they're all incentivized to make the most effective company to make the company that generates the most revenue for its shareholders and to meet their quarterly targets and so on. And it's kind of like, you know, there are a thousand of these engineers at these companies working on this, and no single one of them feels the full weight of the responsibility of making an addictive app. Right. They're just trying to do a job. But then the the cumulative impact of that is 
we get these hyper addictive applications that just keep pulling us in more and more. And, um, and in some cases, humans aren't even totally in charge. Like the, the Facebook algorithm is in charge of what is being served to you. And it just optimizes for the most clicks and comments and replies. And if that happens to be only news stories that generate outrage, then that's what naturally rises to the top and what everybody sees more of. And um, it wasn't like that was ever anybody's true intention. They were just trying to optimize engagement. So it's a we've created like a weird, strange situation with oh that. Oh my god! Yes. To to this point, are there behaviors or habits that Americans are engaged in that concern you, or the habits that we are not concerned in, we are not uh, manifesting that concern you? In other words, do you look at things and you go, "Oh, that's really got to change"? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think. Um, I haven't thought about that particular question enough to feel confident in an answer, but more generally speaking, I will say that technology creates uh, the space of possibilities. So like imagine technology is kind of like a, a clay pot, right? So the thing that you make, so Twitter, for example, is the outside of the pot. But what makes a pot useful, what makes a clay pot useful is the space inside, right? So it's the fact they can contain something. Right. Um and technology is kind of like that, too. It creates a boundary for what can happen. But then the space inside it, the space inside Twitter, is where something interesting happens. And I don't know that we give enough thought to what happens in that space. Uh, we just think about what we're creating. We just think about, oh, we're making a pot. But then there's all this stuff that has evolved out of these technologies. Like, for example, um, meme culture. I mean, like all these memes that are generated on social media, when, that wasn't even really a thing like 20 years ago. Oh, 10 but years now, ago. It's like a big it's a big part of our daily life. People are sharing memes all the time. There are entire businesses built on this on Instagram and so on. And um, technology created the space for that new behavior. And so I do wonder about that. And I guess I'll just call it like the unintended consequences mm -hmm. of creating uh, technology. And we don't we don't think about what's going to happen in that space. And there could be things that come out of that that uh, that we're not aware of. Um, kind of, I, certainly, I, I can't foresee. I kind of figured you'd say technology or diet. Those are the things I kind of expected you to say as the concerning behavior. But there's, but there's even other behaviors, sort of interpersonal behaviors. I don't know how to characterize those or frame them to talk about them as habits. But, you know, we're in a realm where people just treat each other badly. Does, does that kind of thing enter, enter into your book? Mm, how people are treating each other? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know um, – I don't know that humans are wired for a society that has such rapid feedback, you know? So like for most of human history, the feedback loops have been uh, either relatively slow if it's a if it's between many people. So like, you know, imagine trying to get a message to a million people a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. It just, it would have taken forever. You, you know, you'd had people on horseback and so on. Um, or, the tight feedback loops were among a very small group of people. So maybe you could get a message instantly, but you could only get it out to like 25 or 50 people. And uh, now we suddenly have technologies where, you know, a, a Twitter mob can arise in, you know, three minutes um, and you can have a million people screaming at you about something. And that's like a really weird, I don't know if the human brain is designed to achieve that level of feedback. Right. And um, when that happens, I think it, it plays with our emotions. Um, you know, we're, we're not used to that. And so uh, I have noticed that just with myself, you know, I mean, I don't have the world's largest audience, but I have a couple million people read my site each month and a couple hundred thousand email subscribers. And I've 
determined that it is impossible to write an article and send it to 400,000 people and have everybody agree with you. It just oh, can't happen. No. And so I, <laughs> I know that I'm going to have negative feedback no matter what I write. And, um, so you have to learn how to, how to deal with that, uh, that feedback in a better way. And I think that's a skill that is not just for someone like me who has a platform. We all are having to learn that skill now because everybody has a platform. Everybody has a voice. If you're on social media, um, you have access to the masses. And um, so it's kind of like a new social skill we all have to be learning. Do people ask you with help in developing that habit? That particular one, yeah. I don't know that that many people have thought about it yet. Um, but I get all kinds of questions about <laughs> building building all types of habits. Um, but uh, what's but the most I don't common? Know that most what's the most common request? That. What's the common question or, or ask for assistance? Yeah, um, most people want help with exercise habits. That's like the the big pillar one. Um, another common one are writing uh, writing habits. People are looking to build their own platform or looking to write a book or something mm. like that. I think it's something like eighty eight percent of the the population says they want to write a book at some point. Sheesh. Now, what percentage of them actually end up doing that? I'm not sure, but uh, but I think it's interesting to many people. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and I would say, you know, if I was going to pick the pillar habits, like what are core habits that everybody should focus on building, those two would be uh, near the top of the list. I think things like exercise, sleep, and nutrition, those kind of like dial you in from an energy standpoint and make sure you're uh, able to show up at your best each day. And then reading and writing dial you in from like a mental standpoint so you can think more clearly and share your message and do better work and so on. I, I, my understanding is you speak to a lot of Fortune 500 companies and give you know th- this information to big groups. What what is it you're primarily telling them? Well, you know, companies are just a collection of individuals, um, and certainly there can be some emergent behavior that comes out of there, like things that happen at a group wide level that wouldn't happen for an individual, but. The main argument here is, look, if each person in your company can just get 1% better each day, if you can adopt that philosophy of continuous improvement and remain committed to your individual habits, well, then all of a sudden you have, you know, basically an army of employees showing up at their best each day. And for most companies, that's kind of the big battle is do we have everybody rowing in the same direction? You know, if you got people fighting uh, against each other in the boat, then it's hard to get moving downstream at any reasonable speed. So it's a lot about alignment, a lot about showing up and, uh, and working on those small habits. But both for companies and for individuals, um, the place that I always try to start is to scale your habit down and make it as easy as possible. So I like to utilize what I call the two-minute rule. And so the idea is you take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to just the first two minutes. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page. Or do yoga four days a week becomes take out your yoga mat. And people have heard things like this before, right? Like people hear, take baby steps, start small, whatever. But even if you know that you should start small, it's still really easy to start too big. And so people will say something like, all right, I want to run three days a week, but I know I should start small, so I'll only run for 15 minutes. But even that is like way bigger than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like put on your shoes and step out the door. And if you run at all, that's just a bonus. And that sounds kind of silly to people at first because they're like, well, why would I put on my running shoes? Like, that's not going to get me in shape. You know, I, what I really want to do is lose weight. Um, but the point, and this is a key insight about building better habits, is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. If you don't master the art of showing up, you don't have anything to optimize. And so by scaling it down to just the first two minutes and becoming the type of person who shows up each day, whether that's as a, an employee at a company or an individual working on their own habit, 
that's really the first step, the first hurdle we need to cross is do you become the type of person who shows up each day? Are you the type of person that puts on your running shoes and steps out the door three times a week? And if you are, then you have a chance to optimize and improve from there. Do you adhere to these sort of uh, theories about change and preparation for, you know, contemplating change, preparing for change, making the change and maintaining the change? Does that figure into your habit formation? Yeah. You know, as I wrote this book, um, one of the first things I wanted to do was to understand, like, what is our current understanding of human behavior and why, what, what models do we have? You know, so like we have this model, this framework that you just laid out. Uh, then there's uh, power of habit came out with the key routine reward model, which, uh, really harkens back to like the 1930s and BF Skinner with his like stimulus response reward. And so that got me thinking like, well, there must be some, like a variety of models of human behavior. And so I started looking into it, and actually there are a ton. So I have a, I have a spreadsheet of over 100 different models of, mm. that describe how human behavior works. And uh, you just named one. I just named one or two others. Um, and I have a new one in my book, The Four Laws of Behavior Change. It's kind of four stages. That when I looked at those 100, they kind of fell broadly into two camps. So the first camp, I would say, are what I would call like reinforcement models. And those were mostly describing how humans act by either the rewards that they get for the behavior or the punishment that's given and the, the cues that precede it. And then the second broad category were what I would call motivation models. And those described human behavior mostly on like what is driving people? What's your desire? What's your motivation? These are like self-determination theory. There are a variety of, uh, of models that are like this. They're trying to describe like the fundamental drives that urge us on to take a particular action. And my hope was that I could build a model that integrated those two, that both described how external cues and external rewards and consequences shape and influence our behavior, but also how internal moods and emotions and motivations shape our behavior. And um, hopefully I was able to do that. But, you know, of course, with any model, there are assumptions and there are uh, simplifications. That's what a model does. It simplifies reality into a few steps that then you can understand to break it down. And um, so I think all these models can be useful, but the key is knowing what their limitations are and when to employ them and when not, because every model comes with those. I'm not sure I heard four categories. It was the, let's go through them very quickly again, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I divide a habit into four stages, and those four stages are cue, craving, response, and reward. We talked a little bit about cues with the environment, so the things that prompt you. But the key stage here is the second stage, which I call craving, but we could really talk about it as like a prediction. It's no matter what cue you come across, you interpret it in some way. And it's that prediction that you make about what the cue means and how you should act that drives the response, which is the third stage. And then finally, there's some outcome. And I think that these four stages give us a more precise understanding of what a habit is and how it works. Like I was looking at all those human behavior models, and I still had a couple key questions that I felt like weren't being answered. For example, why does the same person respond to the same cue in different ways, depending on when it is? Like you can imagine you walk into the kitchen in the morning And you see a loaf of bread and you think, oh, I should make some toast. And then you make toast and eat and so on. And so for that, that time you see the cue, the loaf of bread and your craving or your prediction is I should make toast. But then you can just as easily imagine 10 minutes later, you walk back into the kitchen and you see the same cue on the counter, the loaf of bread's still there. But now you think, oh, I'm full. I don't want to make toast. And so what I realized is that the way that we interpret cues is dependent on our current state. 
it's dependent on, uh, you know, in this case, we're talking about being hungry versus being full. But that's true for any habit. You know, if you're looking to, if you pull up Tinder and you're swiping through it, what you're really looking for is not to, you don't want to use Tinder. What you want is love and affection. Um, or if you pull up Instagram and you start browsing, you don't actually care about using Instagram. You're looking to be entertained and not feel bored. And so it's really the change in state that you desire that prompts the behavior. Um, whether you're using an app or going for a run or doing something else is just dependent on what the current circumstance is and what the options are that are available to you when you have that desire to change your state. That's a pretty complex category. We just it's it's you know usually thought of in terms of drives. And uh, all yes, of that's sex- a common um, drives is a common term that's used in some of those other behavior models yeah, as well. But, uh, but all of psychoanalysis is packed into drive theory, as well as many other kinds of uh, theoretical frameworks. So they're terribly complex, which which are aimed at answering that question: why you know why people respond to the cues the way they do, essentially. Well, all four stages are terribly complex. Yeah. Just take the response stage, for example. Uh, you know, everything about movement is involved in there. So then you've got anatomy, neuro, you know, uh, neurology, biology, all kinds of things that are happening when you reach for the bread and put a slice in the toaster, right? Mm-hmm. So like there's there's like an infinite number of things that are happening there. And so that's what I mean when I say that all these models and frameworks are simplifications of reality. Yep. But the hope is, and this is true for, for any model, not just right now we're talking about human behavior models, but take physics or mathematics. You know, an equation is just a model. Yep. Now, what makes a model useful is how well it predicts the future. So it's predictive power and how much you can rely on it to get a result or to use it, you know, in a, in an everyday circumstance. And so my hope is uh, that these four stages are highly useful, even if they are not uh, infinitely precise. So the, the stages that I described, cue, craving, response, and reward out of those four stages. And this is the backbone of the book um, come what I call the four laws of behavior change. And so for building a good habit, that is Q. The first law is make it obvious. So you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible. For craving, you want to make it attractive. The more attractive a habit is to you, the more likely you are to follow it. We talked about that earlier with social environment and what habits are attractive in a given tribe. For the response, you want to make it easy. The less friction associated with the behavior, the more convenient it is. The more you adhere to that two-minute rule, uh, the easier it will be for a habit to be performed. And then for the reward, you want to make it satisfying. And it's really about making it immediately satisfying. Because if you have like a, an immediate positive emotional signal after the habit, if it feels good, then you'll have a reason to repeat it in the future. And then if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert each of those four laws. So rather than make it obvious, you want to make the cues invisible. Rather than make it attractive, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And my hope is that that framework is highly practical um, and, uh, of course I go over dozens of ways in the book to actually apply that. How'd you get into this? Well, I came into it in two ways. The first way was as someone who practiced habits. And of course, all humans have habits. Uh, I first started noticing them as an athlete. So I was a baseball player all the way through college. And as any athlete can tell you, you have all kinds of habits, both on the practice field and in the gym and, uh, as you're training No, I didn't really have a language for it at the time. Like I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better each day or, um, you know, I'm trying to build better habits or something like that. Uh, I was just focused on doing what I was supposed to do at practice. 
But I realized that, man, when I had these routines, when I was dialed in, things were much easier and things really uh, started to click and move forward for me. But it wasn't until a few years later uh, that I decided to start my own company. This was after graduate school that I realized uh, I'm trying these business ideas and they're all flopping. I have no idea why someone would buy something or you know what's going wrong here. And I realized I didn't understand how to market things. And so I started studying consumer behavior to figure out, like, why does someone sign up to an email list? Why does someone buy a product? And as I got into consumer behavior, I naturally started to bleed more toward behavioral psychology. Mm -hmm. And that got me interested in the science of behavior change and so on. And I have a science background. I was I was mostly in the hard sciences academically. Um, My actual degree is in biomechanics, but it was mostly chemistry and physics classes. And so I was interested in the research. And uh, about six years ago, I decided, you know what, I'll just start writing about this because I had I had this word document that was like 60 pages long with all my thoughts on habits. And uh, so I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. And I did that for the first three years. And I, I had a friend tell me early on, because I was feeling the same thing everybody feels when they start. It was like, well, who am I to write about this? And he was like, look, you become an expert by writing about it every right, week. Right. And, uh, and so I did that for three years and then signed the book deal and then spent the last three years uh, doing even deeper research and writing on it. So now I've you know, written about the topic every week for six years. And it turns out that if you do that with pretty much any topic, uh, you'll learn a lot. <laughs> you get pretty good at it. That's a habit. That is, yes. <laughs> the, a, the habit of writing has completely changed the trajectory of my career um, and led to what we may call, I guess, expertise in, in this particular area. Hey, if you're looking for a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP, but you probably don't like me. You don't even know what it stands for. How about invoice, list price, dealer price? It's meant to be confusing. What you really want is the price, the price you're going to pay, which actually means something. And now introducing True Price from True Car, you will know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you ever get to the dealership. True Car dealers know they, they know this, and they show you the True Car price on the car you want, all from the comfort of your home. How do you know true car, the true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. You see that scatter gam, and you lock in the price for an actual vehicle on a True Car certified dealer's lot. And the true the True Car certified dealers know all this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy new or used, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Well, uh, we always try to stay ahead of things when it comes to our health, but uh, information is the one thing that we cannot get enough of, and that is why I'm excited that Color.com, Color, a genetic test that's provided powerful insights into my own health. Turns out I have something called Lynch syndrome. My sons have it. We have to get more aggressive screening done, and guess what? Because the insurance companies don't want us to get these illnesses that we're prone to, they pay for the screening. Color can help you gain insights on certain cancers and heart conditions that may run in your family and whether or not you should start cancer screenings earlier or maybe get more screening uh, at, at whatever age you're at. They And I'll tell you what, what they do is they have you get one-on-one time with a color geneticist and they give you a huge readout, tons of information. It's really – it's very effective what they do. And the geneticist will answer all your questions until you're satisfied. The kid has sent you in the mail. You can do it. Uh, it's a spit test. You do it at home and then you ship it back. Easy peasy. Uh, they even go above and beyond just flagging concerns. They want to be sure you really understand your biology. They help you make a plan to approach your health proactively and they help you with by notifying your physician as well. Get a guiding hand for your health journey. Color's offering $25 off for our listeners when you visit color.com slash Drew. 
I cannot recommend this strong enough. Certainly everybody of middle age should be getting this. This would have been thousands of dollars years ago. Now now it's nothing and they are a high, high quality organization. I, I really am excited to be representing them. Color.com slash Drew. Again, color.com slash Drew. What do you what do you consider the habit of writing? Well, for me, it was writing every Monday and Thursday. Now, I don't think any there's anything special about that particular pace. Um, and really, we could boil it down to even less than that. So I, I mentioned the two-minute rule earlier. I have a friend who's a, a writer. His um, habit is to write one sentence each day. Wow. And, you know, so, of course, there are many days where he'll write much more than that. But I think that this is actually – we haven't talked about this yet, but I – you know, mostly so far we've talked about habits as the method for external results. Mm-hmm. You know, habits are a way to lose weight or make more money or be more productive or reduce stress. And it's true. Habits can do all of those things. But the reason I love habits like this one I just mentioned of write one sentence each day and I think the deeper purpose that they serve in our lives and the reason they're so crucial and I feel like it was important for me to write this book about them is that – Habits are not only the method through which we achieve external results, they're also the method through which we shape and inform our internal identity. In a sense, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. Whenever you make this is, this, make is, this, is this is back to Aristotle's notion. Yes, right. How you uh, develop character, yeah. right? How you yeah. develop a particular identity. Yeah. So, you know, if you make your bed each morning, you do that. You embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Or whenever you go to the gym, you embody the identity of someone who is fit. And it's sort of like every action you take is a vote for the kind of person you want to become. And as you take these little actions, you know, I've I've meditated fourteen out of fifteen days, or I've gone to the gym twenty five of the last thirty days. It's like you're casting little votes. And as those votes build up, you kind of have this little like pile of evidence and you have something to actually root your identity in, something to actually root that belief in. And you start to reshape your self-image. And this, I think, is actually like crucially different than what you often hear people say, which is like fake it till you make it, because fake it till you make it is asking you to believe something about yourself without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion. And so at some point, the brain doesn't like that. Like you might be able, it might be an okay short-term strategy. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with like just believing you can do it, but it's not a good long-term way to shift your self-image and what you believe about yourself. And I think that behavior and specifically small habits are a great way to cast votes for that particular identity and ultimately reshape how you see yourself. And that, I think, is the true purpose of the real meaning, the reason that habits matter so much, is that they can not only deliver external results, but also reshape us and maybe maybe even upgrade or expand your identity into something more confident um, and more robust. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that in a in very basic sense, some people change better outside in, some people change better inside out. That's sort of what you're describing. And when I think about like people struggling with drug addiction, you know, one of the, one of the first and most important habits we're asking them to sustain is rigorous honesty, the habit of honesty. And it's, it's, it's stunning how much difficulty they have with that. It's also stunning how much that changes everything. Hmm. Well, in a sense, if you can reshape your identity or reshape uh, how you look at the situation, if you can be rigorously honest, for example, 
Um, that is kind of, uh, you know, we were talking about how much is packed into that second stage, that craving or prediction stage. Yeah. Well, it gives you a totally different way to interpret all the cues and experiences in your life. Yeah. Now, suddenly you have the same experience you had before, but you interpret it in a different way, and thus you respond in a different way. Um, but, of course, the mental work required to do that is significant, and sometimes the hurdle is, is really large. I'm not sure we've talked about sustaining habits yet, because that, that to me is always, for most people, the most difficult part. They can get it going, but maintenance is very hard for people, it seems like. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So. Um, there are two things I want to say here. So the, the first is in this four stage model that I laid out, um, cue craving and response, those first three stages, those are all about getting a habit to happen. The first time you want to make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy. That'll get you to act. And of, and of course that third stage is the action itself, but the fourth stage, make it satisfying that reward. That's what gets you to repeat And so I think one way to describe this is perceived value motivates you to act. Actual value motivates you to repeat. So let me give you an example of that. If you're going to buy a book, for example, on Amazon, you don't actually buy the book. When you go to Amazon and you look at the page, you buy the image that the sales page creates in your mind. You can't buy the book because you don't have it yet. It hasn't been delivered to your door. Um, So the perceived value of what you're going to get is what motivates you to click buy and to check out. But when the book arrives and you read it and you enjoy it, uh, presumably, that is what gets motivates you to repeat, whether it's to buy another book from Amazon or to share that book with a friend or to read it again for a second time. Um, But it's uh, so it's the enjoyment. It's the value. It's the reward that gets you to stick with a habit in the long run. And the point here is that you need some kind of positive, satisfying ending to perform a habit again. And businesses know this really well. So like a couple examples, um, BMW, uh, most recently, like maybe five years ago or so, six years ago, they added a uh, feature to one of their cars where if you pressed on the accelerator and you slammed down really hard, it would pump additional engine growl noise through the speakers. So it was making it more satisfying to step on the gas. Hysterical. Uh, Right. Ford had a similar product where there was kind of like a valve. And if you uh, drove normally, it would stay closed and the interior would be soundproofed. And if you stepped on the gas hard, it would open up and let the engine noise in. But the point is they're giving people this immediate feedback, right? Oh, now it's more enjoyable to drive the car. And so you'll want to drive it. Toothpaste is another common example. There's no reason that toothpaste needs to taste minty. It doesn't actually make it clean your teeth better, but it tastes a lot better than like a bland paste. And so because it's more satisfying, because you get this clean mouth feel, now you have a reason to repeat it and brush your teeth again. Um, chewing gum was similar. It For a long time, for many years, chewing gum was just like this bland resin. It was chewy, but it wasn't tasty. And it wasn't until Wrigley came around in like the late 1800s and came out with the first like flavors like juicy fruit and spearmint and double mint that chewing gum took off as this worldwide habit. And as mm. soon as Wrigley introduced those flavors and people had a more satisfying experience, chewing gum became this like very popular habit. And that's true for almost any habit that the more satisfying you can make the ending, the more likely it is people are going to stick with it. Okay. So how can we apply that principle to, to pretty much any habit? Well, the first thing that you can do is choose the form of a habit that is most satisfying to you or most enjoyable. So take the habit of exercise. There are many ways to exercise. Like I lift, I like lifting weights, but not everybody wants to work out like a bodybuilder. You know, like you can, 
go hiking, you could go kayaking, you do yoga, you could do Pilates, you could rock climb. There, there are a ton of ways to do that. So choose the form that's most enjoyable to you in the moment. Because often people miss this, this key point that behaviors, pretty much every behavior produces multiple outcomes across time. Like for example, eating a donut, the immediate outcome of eating a donut is enjoyable. It's sugary, it's tasty, it's sweet, it's great. But the ultimate outcome, like a month or a year from now, if you keep repeating this habit, is unproductive, unhealthy, unsatisfying, you gain weight, and so on. For good habits, it's often the reverse, where the immediate outcome of like going to the gym is kind of challenging, you know, like it requires sweat and sacrifice and effort. Like it's not really that enjoyable. It's kind of unfavorable. But the ultimate outcome, if you repeat that habit for a month or a year, is favorable. And so a lot of the battle of getting good habits to stick is figuring out ways to like pull those long-term rewards, that enjoyment, um, the delayed gratification into the present moment. And so if you pick the form of exercise that feels best to you in the moment, make it about how you feel rather than what your body looks like in the mirror, then you have a reason to show up again. So that's the first thing you can make habit, choose, choose the form of a habit that's most satisfying to you. But the second one, I, I always say with the exercise, I just say make sure you, the, ex, the exercises that you'll do is the one that you like doing or that you'll do. You know yes, I mean? that's precisely it. Yeah. And you could say that about almost any habit, right? Yeah. Like say if you want to get in the habit of reading, well, what kind of books should you read? Well, you should read the kind that you enjoy. Yeah. You know, like if that happens to be sappy romance novels, then so be it. If it happens to be, you know, like fantasy literature, then great. If it's, you know, if it's nonfiction books, then that's fine. But don't. Don't feel pressured to build the kind of habit that you feel like society says you should build. Build the one that feels good to you, that you like in the moment, because that's the one that's going to stick. That's the one you'll do, right. Um, so that's the first piece. And then the second piece is, and I don't think you need to do this for every habit, but uh, tracking and measurement can be very useful. So there are many habits that I have, like um, you know, flossing my teeth or tying my shoes. I don't need to track how often I do that. Like I don't need a process of continuous improvement for tying my shoes, but for habits that are important to you for like a few of those core ones, you know, like for me, it's reading and weightlifting and writing. Um, it does make sense to track those because one, like I track all my workouts. And so it feels good to close the book on another workout. I write down all the sets and reps and there's just like a little small sense of accomplishment that comes from closing the book on that particular uh, evening on that particular workout and um, tracking visual forms of measurement like that. They immediately give you a signal that you're making progress. A lot of the time, you know, like if you go to the gym, the reward of going to the gym for like three weeks isn't really a whole lot. Your body looks basically the same in the mirror. The scale really hasn't changed that much. And so you need something, some kind of visual signal that says, hey, this was worth it. And uh, tracking and measurement can be one way to do that and make you feel a little bit more satisfied in the moment. We've got to kind of wrap things up. Have we missed anything? Is there, I mean, we've been in almost encyclopedic so far. Is there some area that you think people are, should know about or that you want them to sort of think about uh, and a reason to have them come read Atomic Habits? Oh, there's so much to talk about. We, uh, we actually, there's a lot that we weren't able to cover, but I, I do want to leave people with something practical. So, um, I think pretty much anyone will enjoy the book and find it useful and interesting. Um, I, I am hard pressed to say that someone would read it and not find at least a few ideas they could apply. Oh, for sure. But if I'm going to suggest one place to start, it would be with the two minute rule. So scaling your habit down to just the first two minutes, trying to master the art of showing up. 
And then um, the second one is if you want a habit to stick, and we, you know, we just talked about a variety of ways to get habits to last by making them satisfying. But man, the ultimate way to do that is by employing the social environment, by joining a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. People do all kinds of habits for decades on end because they're in a community that supports them. Um, if they, you know, think about people going to church for 30 years in a row and they all live in the same community, they walk right. to church together and so yes, on. Perfect. And it's really the fact that that's where all their friends are going every Sunday or Saturday or whenever. Um, and that's what the community does. And so that's what they do as well. And you can take that same principle and apply it to pretty much any other habit. It's really interesting. Well, I thank you for the book, and I thank you for the hard work and the research, and uh, I, I think it's really going to help people. I just, you know, we, we started this conversation, and I was telling you that I found Adam and I were talking an awful lot about habits and how little people sort of dis- thought about them. That that and, and I was thinking at the time about Aristotle and his comment about, you know, you build yourself out of habits. Uh, you know, literally, your your character, yourself, is, is just a, a, an amalgamation of habits in, in certain sense. And I think your book uh, drives some of those kinds of points home. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that that's a central thing. And uh, I, I hope that people will find the book helpful and useful. And um, thank you so much for the time. What's at Habits Academy before I, before I let you run? Habits Academy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so Atomic Habits is uh, is the book. And I think the best place to start, and that's at atomichabits.com. And then the Habits Academy is uh, a more in-depth course Um that is particularly organized for individuals and for organizations that are looking to build better habits in life and work. So if you're if you have a team and you're looking to build better habits across that team, Habits Academy, the Habits Academy is a great place to start. Fantastic, James Clear. Thank you so much. Great, thank you. Yeah, and we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.